good morning to everyone. This past week, uh, the staff, so Brian, Rick, Chris, Jonathan, and myself attended a, a conference in Louisville. And I don't know if you're aware or not, some of you might be aware, that that's actually made possible by the church. That's something the church budgets each year, uh, giving us an opportunity as staff to get away together and take in a conference. So on behalf of all the staff, again, Brian, Chris, Rick, Jonathan, and myself, I do want to express our, our sincerest thanks. Uh, it was an, event, an eventful flight home. Um, that storm that went through Friday night, we caught the tail end of that about 20 minutes out of Dallas at around 10 o'clock at night. And I have, I've been on a lot of planes in my life, but uh, I have never experienced anything like that. It was, it was frightening. You learn a lot about people um, <laughs> when that happens. Jonathan screams without making any noise. <laughs> you might be interested in knowing that. I pick on Jonathan because he isn't in the room to defend himself. But uh, the Lord brought us through all of that. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of, the book of Luke. Uh, we are focusing our attention on much of the fourth chapter over the next three months, and there are a couple of reasons why we're doing this. Uh, the first reason is, is simple, straightforward. Uh, we here right now want to make sure we know who Jesus is. Uh, we need to face the facts that when uh, someone speaks the word Jesus, they don't necessarily mean by that what you mean by that. They don't necessarily mean what I mean by that. When I say the word Jesus, it might not mean that name uh, precisely what you think. Uh, simply evoking the word Jesus is meaningless until we actually define, consider, study who Jesus is. So that's our first objective, to use this text to clarify our thinking as to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. The second reason we're doing this is far more pastoral. Uh, by the time we are done, uh, I, I pray, I hope that the Lord Jesus has, in our estimation, uh, gone up, uh, that, that we value him, that we esteem him, that we cherish him. As we see the Lord Jesus revealed in this particular text and others that will shed some light on Luke 4, that again, we would grow in our esteem for Christ. Uh, when Allison and I were married, as was the case, I'm sure, with most, if not all, married couples here, uh, we received a few gifts at our wedding, right? And we received from uh, family members a, a rug, and a beautiful rug. And uh, valuable, especially for two kids who probably didn't have more than $50 in the bank at the time. And we displayed that rug in our two-bedroom basement apartment in Dixon Hill. And we cherished it because we valued it. And we displayed it because we cherished it. And one evening we had friends in for a meal. And we set up uh, the food and drinks on the main table. 
and then explain to everyone. It was every man for himself. After that, just find a place to sit. And our friends had a little boy, a cute little thing, chubby little thing. He was barely two years of age, hadn't been walking that long. And he got his little plate of food and this big cup of grape juice. And guess where he ended up? On the rug, walking around with those chubby little wrists, arms, what eventually formed into biceps, carrying that big cup of grape juice over that rug that we cherished. Allison and I, we had not been married long, but uh, the look and the glance communicated volumes. I can't exactly remember what happened. I can't remember if she got the grape juice out of that little fella's hands or the little fella out of the room. It was one or the other in order to mitigate the threat of that grape juice spilling on that rug, which in our estimation was precious. We valued it, therefore we cherished it. We cherished it, therefore we displayed it. And because we displayed it, arising from our estimation of it, we protected it. I pray by the time we're finished, that's our handling of the Lord Jesus, that uh, we value him more, we cherish him more, we display him more, and we protect, defend who he is, his person, and his work. And so let me read our text. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read everything that we're going to cover in the next couple of months. Let me just pick it up again from verse 14 and go as far as verse 18, the first phrase or two into the 18th verse. And so follow along as I read God's word for us. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. I want that to arrest, grab our attention this day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And what I want us to consider is the following. The relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought of it like this? Jesus has a friend. Jesus has a companion. That friend, that companion is the Spirit of God. Scripture has a great deal to say concerning this relationship, and I want to unpack it for us this morning. How I'm going to proceed is very simple. If you're using the sermon notes, you see nine blanks, right? The Holy Spirit, blank. The Holy Spirit, blank. The Holy Spirit, blank. One through nine. And, and, and I want to impress upon you, I want you to think in terms of a string of pearls. And on this string, there are nine pearls. And together, this string, this necklace is beautiful. You gaze upon it, the pearls sparkle as they catch the light. And together, we see the relationship as a whole between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. But I also want you to think in terms of removing each of those pearls 
one by one and realizing that you can take just one and remove it from the whole. You can handle it. You can feel it. You can gaze upon it and appreciate one particular component of this relationship. And I'm going to go through these nine quickly. I'm not going to belabor them. I pray if you're taking notes, you have your pen at the ready. And my hope is that you will make use of this in your devotions. Maybe consider one each morning over the next nine days. But just take each pearl, take what I'm going to give you from God's word and meditate and reflect upon it, what it teaches, what it conveys, what it stresses. Again, concerning this relationship between friends. This relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so here is the first point, the first pearl. We considered it last week. It bears repeating. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to produce Jesus' human nature. All the way back with me. Again, we looked at it last Sunday. But again, chapter 1, verse 35 The angel's declaration to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Our confessions are important. The Westminster Confession of Faith is extremely helpful at this point. It states the following. Listen closely. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It does not say Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That would be a gross error. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, of Her substance. And so what we want to have crystallized very clear in our minds is simply this. The substance, the material, physical material, was natural. It's Mary's egg in Mary's womb. The conception is supernatural. The human nature of Jesus, body and soul, the result of the Spirit working upon the substance in Mary's womb. Why is this so important? For the following reason. It means that Jesus' human nature, body and soul, human nature, truly man, fully man, body and soul, was derived from Mary without any stain of sin. So there's the first pearl on this necklace concerning the relationship between the Spirit of God and Jesus. It was the Spirit who overshadowed the Virgin Mary to produce Jesus' body and soul. Here's the second point I want to make concerning this relationship. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus for his work as mediator. It's what we read but a few moments ago, back with me to the fourth chapter, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. 
And so the Holy Spirit, again, here's the point, anointed Jesus. Why? For the work of his mediator. When? When did this happen? When did this occur? Back into the third chapter. I know we're jumping around, but stick with me. It's important for us to see this, read this, process this, understand this. Verse 21 of chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Why like a dove? I think it harkens back to Noah. The end of the flood, he releases the dove. It speaks of a new creation, the creative work of the Spirit of God. And now we have the Spirit of God again, if you like, hovering over the deep, the waters of God's judgment. Jesus just having passed through the baptismal waters, the Spirit of God descends on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That was his anointing. The Spirit has always been with him. The Spirit has been with him since conception. The Spirit is the reason why he has grown physically and intellectually and spiritually in favor with man and more importantly, in favor with God. But what happens here now at this precise moment at his baptism or rather following his, his, his baptism is the Spirit now anointing Jesus, setting him apart, marking him, identifying him as the Lord's anointed. That is, the one who will function as the mediator between God and man. There is a problem. We are alienated from our Creator. There is a great chasm, if you like that mental image and all that it conjures up between God and us. We require someone to step into the gap. That one who steps into the gap must be able to represent God, meaning he must be God. And the one who steps into the gap must be able to relate to us. He must be man. And in the Lord Jesus, we have the one who alone is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. And at this moment, the Spirit of God anoints him, identifying him as this promised mediator and a mediator who will function in three ways. He will function as a prophet. You think of Moses of old. And this prophet, Jesus, now anointed by the Spirit, will reveal God. And he will declare all that he has heard and received from his father. Secondly, he will function as a priest. You think of Aaron of old. Aaron acting as that mediator between God and the nation, bringing that blood, that spilt blood into the most holy place. Well, Jesus now assumes that role definitively, whereby he reconciles man with God through the blood of his cross functioning as a priest. Thirdly, he is anointed as a king. You think of David as old. And as a king, what does he do? He defeats us. He subjects us. He bows our will to the will of the Almighty, making us subservient to him. And so this is the second aspect or component of this relationship between the Spirit and Jesus. The Holy Spirit anointed him for his work as mediator. Here's the third pearl we're going to handle. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to resist temptation. And so the anointing has happened at the Jordan following Jesus' baptism. 
What do we read in the fourth chapter, first verse? And Jesus, now what? Full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from where? The Jordan, where this anointing has taken place, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Mark describes this event in slightly different terms. It is helpful. He actually tells us that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. It's a very strong word. It means to be compelled. He was driven there, forced there, having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, now full of the Holy Spirit. The first order of business is now for the Spirit to lead him and direct him into the wilderness where he will be tempted by the devil. How did the Lord Jesus resist the devil's temptations? Steady on here. If your answer is simply this, well, he's God, you're missing something. He is fully God. He is fully man. According to Philippians chapter 2, he has emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. Please understand that the deity never acts directly upon the humanity, but immediately through the Spirit of God. And so the Lord Jesus overcomes the devil's temptations in the wilderness, not because he's God, but because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit strengthens him in that combat and enables him to wield, if you like, the Word of God, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, strengthening, equipping, and enabling Jesus to overcome temptation. It was the Spirit who empowered him to resist temptation. Here's the fourth point I want to make. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to preach. And so he has been anointed, chapter 3, verse 22. He is now full of the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what we now read in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Skip down, same chapter, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Same chapter, down to verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. One more verse down to 32. And they, Jesus having moved on to Capernaum, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Where did that authority come from? Where did the power in his preaching come from? Why did his preaching stir or provoke such a contrast in terms of the response? 
that on the one hand, there are those who hear him preaching, come face to face with his authority, and they wonder to themselves, no man ever taught like this man. And they stood in amazement as they heard his words. While at the other extreme, others, as they come face to face with his authority, as they hear his teaching, they are repulsed. They find it repugnant. And so there is this twofold mark, distinct, drastically different response to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. His words evoked love or hatred. Love for him or hatred of him. Why such an effect? Why such power? It is because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Having been anointed with the Spirit for the fulfillment of his mission, he now preaches empowered by that same Spirit. Here's the fifth point I want to make. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to perform miracles. And so again, back to chapter 3, verse 22. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1, he is full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 14, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Go all the way down to verse 36 of chapter 4. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Again, in our thinking, if we conclude that Jesus performed these miracles because he is God, we've missed something. The divine nature never works directly nor immediately upon the human nature. He has emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He is living in dependence upon his Father and in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And it is the Holy Spirit working in him whereby he casts out the demons, whereby he heals the sick, heals the leper, heals the paralytic, raises the dead. It is all done under the influence and power of the Spirit Peter declared, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. It is the Spirit of God working in and through Jesus to enabling him to preach and enabling him to perform wondrous works. Here's point number six. The Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to lay down his life. We move beyond Luke's gospel account. No need to turn there. I will read it for you. Hebrews 9, 14. Through the eternal spirit. Through the eternal spirit. Christ offered himself without blemish to God. What made his offering acceptable? It is the Holy Spirit. How did he offer himself to God? It was through the Holy Spirit. How was he strengthened and enabled to offer himself as a sacrifice to the living God? Through the eternal spirit. 
Jesus offered himself upon Calvary's cross while anointed with the Spirit who gave dignity and efficacy to his sacrifice. Here is point number seven. The Holy Spirit preserved Jesus' body in the grave. Preserved his body in the grave. No need to turn there, just listen. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Paul states it in even clearer terms. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. That is how he was raised from the dead. And while he was in the grave, he did not undergo, he did not see corruption. As we read in Psalm 16, Acts chapter 2, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow him to see corruption. When the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, thereby creating the body, the soul, the human nature of Jesus, that nature was brought into the subsistence with the Son of God. And when Jesus died upon Calvary's cross, that union with soul and body while separated, he was not separated from his body. And that body was preserved by the Spirit of God in the grave. Here's the ninth point, the eighth point I want to make. The Holy Spirit not only preserved Jesus' body in the grave, but formed Jesus' glorified body. And so when he rose from the dead, it was by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, that he rose from the dead. At the incarnation, yes, it, the Spirit creates the body and soul. And it is at the resurrection that the Spirit formed Jesus' human nature, again, as his glorified nature. It is the Spirit of God who took the old at the resurrection and made it new. One more pearl to handle. Here it is, number nine. The Holy Spirit continues to fill Jesus in glory. That now exalted at the right hand of the Father, the anointing, that anointing which Jesus experienced back at his baptism, now by virtue of his glorification and his glorified soul and body, is now filled to an extent it was never filled before. And it is as the anointed Son of God, he in whom the Spirit of God dwells in fullness, that the Lord Jesus now from the right hand of God dispenses the Spirit to his people. Do I dare ask if you got all of that? Nine pearls in a necklace concerning the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Here's how I want to apply it. Here's the use I want to make of it. These wondrous truths. Not merely that we understand Jesus better, who he is. Not merely that we, we, we grasp to a larger extent, perhaps a better degree, some clarification as to the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But precisely the bearing this has on us. And so firstly, let me suggest to you that in this relationship... And this relationship as it is depicted in these nine 
pearls on a string. There is a wonder to admire. Here is a wonder to admire. We all seek wonders. We all like to be amazed. We all enjoy the thrill, so to speak. Uh, Many of us crave that sense of awe and wonder. Oh, as we gaze upon the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, here indeed we have cause for wonder. Last night, Allison and I sitting on the couch, the context I think was a text from Laura looking for quotes from Charlotte's Web, a book with which we're all familiar. And Allison started reading out some of these quotes and one of them caught my attention. Mrs. Arable is in the is in, the, is in the hospital, and she says to her doctor, uh, do you understand how there could be any writing in a spider's web? You remember the story, right? Charlotte's web. Do you understand how there could be any writing in a spider's web? The doctor responded, oh, no, I don't understand it. But for that matter, I don't understand how a spider learned to spin a web in the first place. When the words appeared, everyone said they were a miracle. Nobody pointed out that the web itself is a miracle. We are surrounded by miracles. We are surrounded by causes of awe and wonder. And in this relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, eclipsing all other wonders, oh, here is a cause for amazement. Let me speak to you pastorally. Let me speak to you very directly, my friend. Does this bore you? I pity you if this bores you. Here is a cause of admiration. Here is a cause of absolute wonder and amazement and marvel as we gaze upon the one who became flesh. The one who took to himself and assumed body and soul, human nature. The one who emptied himself of his divine rights and divine prerogatives and lived as a man. A man, like you and me, and lived filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he obeyed as a man. Never think to yourself, well, he obeyed because he's God. What else could he do? No, he obeyed as a man who had emptied himself of his divine rights and prerogatives and lived as a man in full dependence upon the Spirit of God and obeyed God perfectly to such a degree that his father could declare from heaven above, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My friend, your salvation hangs upon it. The cross is only half the equation. Upon the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin. In his life, he accomplished what we could never do. Not in a million years. We don't even come close to it. You must be perfect as God is perfect. Oh, here is the wonder of wonders. That a man, God, man, true enough. But a man, flesh and blood, body and soul, living in dependence upon the Spirit of God, in subjection to the Spirit of God, fulfilled all righteousness. Oh, it's not only a cause of wonder. That is where I rest. That is where I rest daily. 
that in Jesus I know that all that God demands of me and requires of me is satisfied in him. I now look to him. I now rest in him. And I stand amazed at this wonder of wonders that God himself took to himself flesh, body and soul, that emptying himself of his divine prerogatives, he lived as a man in dependence upon the spirit and he did it for my salvation. Here's the second pastoral implication of these pearls. Here's a question to ponder, a question to ponder. Questions are profoundly important in the Christian journey. You think of some of the greatest questions in Scripture from God speaking to man, speaking to Adam, for example. Where are you? That's a great question. It might apply directly to many here this morning for all I know. Where are you? Where are you spiritually? What's going on? What have you done? There's a great question. How many of us want to answer that one this morning? What have you done? What's going on? Explain yesterday. Explain the past week. Oh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? There's a great question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? A question from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Who do you say that I am? You better get it right. To err is damnation. To get it right is glory. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? What a great question that we ought to ask ourselves frequently is simply this. Do I know Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Do I know Jesus as he is revealed in the word of God? Let me break it down into three simpler questions. Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus anointed to fulfill a threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. Do I know Jesus as prophet? Really now. Do you know Jesus as prophet? Do we read this book and take it as the words of Jesus? Do we learn from this book and increase in our understanding of who he is? He's a priest. Do I know him as a priest? Am I approaching God through the Lord Jesus? Or am I still trying to approach God in my own strength, my own ability, my own what I perceive to be successes, merits, whatever? Or have I thrown all of that away, cast it all from me, and understood definitively once and for all that the only reason I approach God is through a priest? There must be a priest, a mediator, the Lord Jesus. Do I know him as king? What do kings do? We don't like this. We're all so democratic. What do kings do? They tell you what to do. They give orders. They give commands. Why? This king, because he knows what is best. And he loves us with a love that we struggle to conceive. He wants what is best for us. His commands are a manifestation, a revelation of his goodness. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him as a prophet? Do we know him as a priest? Do we know him as a king? Here's a third point of application. This relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Here's a reason to repent. Here's a reason to repent. This was really driven home. Was it the week before last? A couple of weeks ago now? I can't remember. 
Allison and I watched a, a documentary made a few years ago on, on Lance Armstrong. Do you remember Lance Armstrong, cyclist? What was it seven or eight tours of France he won? And I don't know what else. Tons of stuff. Absolute fraud. Absolute fraud. Worse than that, habitual liar. The lies and the deceit and the deception. I mean, it is, it is startling. But, but that isn't really what grabbed my attention. What grabbed my attention was this. At the same time, the millions of dollars that he raised for cancer research. Selflessly, really. Millions and millions of dollars raised for hospitals, for research, for those stricken with cancer. And so here you have this enigma of enigmas, Lance Armstrong. On the one hand, all of this good that he had done and accomplished. And on the other hand, you have an absolutely habitual liar who, from the estimation of those who knew him well, was a complete rat when it came as a teammate and the life he lived. And here is this enigma. And as I sat there, and as we're all prone to do, from my high chair, you know, and started to cast judgment on Lance Armstrong, I realized, you know, there it is. That's man. That's me. That's man. That deep within, we cannot escape our sinful inclination. We cannot escape our propensity to sin and how it manifests itself not merely in deceit, but in hypocrisy. Not merely in deceit and hypocrisy, but, it, but in lust. Not merely in lust, but in anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. This is the human predicament. While at the same time, we are capable of doing things which in our estimation seem to be so good. And we do these things which are seemingly so good. Why? To account for and compensate for what we know lurks deep within. And all the while, what is it that is required of us? It is to come face to face with. It is to come to terms and to grips with who we are before a holy God and repent of our sin. That repentance, I mean, when we really get honest with ourselves, see ourselves as we truly are, that repentance, mark my words, will not come as a result of a fear of hell. A fear of hell will make us make some changes, but it won't lead to repentance. It won't come out of a fear of God's coming judgment. It won't come out of a perceived threat of pain and suffering. No, repentance comes when we perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus as he has un unfolded in this text, when we just pause and consider the Lord Jesus, his relationship with the Holy Spirit, why he was sent, what he, why he came to do, and precisely what he accomplished. It is that love that leads us to repentance. The hymn writer put it well. What was it, blessed God? Led thee to give thy son, to yield thy well-beloved, for us by sin undone. T'was love unbounded led thee thus, to give thy well-beloved for us. He goes on and he adds, What led the Son of God to leave his throne on high? 
to shed his precious blood, to suffer and to die. It was love unbounded, love to us. Let him to die and suffer thus. When we see the Lord Jesus, uh, there is a reason to repent. The love of God poured out in Christ. Bring your lust to him. Our bitterness to him. Hatred to him. Anger. Prejudice. Vanity. Hypocrisy. Unforgiveness. And see the love of God poured out at Calvary's cross in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, there is an overwhelming reason to repent. Fourthly, here is a pattern to follow. Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, he resisted temptation. In the power of the Spirit, he preached. In the power of the Spirit, he worked wonders. In the power of the Spirit, he offered himself up upon Calvary's cross. In the power of the Spirit, he, raised, he rose from the dead. Everything he ever did, he did in the power of the Spirit. He lived in communion with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived in obedience to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived in obedience, uh, uh, hope of God, expectation of God, rooted and fixed upon the promises of God in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know what it means to be spiritual? Do we want to know what it means to live a spiritual life? Do we really want to grasp and come to grips with what it means to walk by the Spirit? We have a pattern to follow. His name is Jesus. Jesus was not Superman. He was not God who had assumed the place of the human soul functioning as God. Let me again be as clear as I possibly can. Read it. Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He lived as a man like you and like me without sin. And he lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be spiritual? Live like Jesus. And here's the fifth and final point of application. Here is a gift to cherish. A gift to cherish. Listen to the words of Acts 2.33 as we close. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Poured out what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson has explained it as follows. Oh, I pray we get this. The Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to us is the same Holy Spirit who accompanied and sustained Jesus throughout the whole of his ministry. Oh, here is a gift to cherish. Christian, think what spirit dwells within thee? What a father's smile is thine. What thy Savior died to win thee, child of heaven, shouldst thou repine.
Oh, may we value him. May we cherish him. And in cherishing, display and protect. Oh, that the Lord Jesus would be exalted in our heart's estimation this day. That in him we would find all our delight. Our precious, loving, heavenly Father. This is our prayer. That Christ would be exalted in us. There are so many distractions. There is so much in life that clouds our view, that distracts us and impedes upon our attention. And we pray that by your word and by all that we've considered this day, that you would give us a fresh sight of the Lord Jesus. And as we see him, may we love him more, delighting in him, desiring him above all else. And with this, may you be well pleased. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.